0: Welcome to Aspect Radio, I'm Corey Kraft. And I'm Ben Flanagan. Today we hitch a ride to Mars to dissect Andrew Stanton's John Carter, both the film and the marketing backlash that preceded its doomed-from-the-get-go release. Plus, we sign up for the buddy cop comedy, 21 Jump Street. But first, we go to the Red Planet. Andrew Stanton, a Pixar Mount Rushmore head who made Finding Nemo and *Wally*, making his live-action feature debut should be enough to put your and my butts in the seat. And it would have been. Spending years adapting Edgar Rice Burroughs' science fiction novel A Princess of Mars to the big screen after decades of development hell, Stanton finally made it happen when so many couldn't thanks to modern mocap and green screen technology plus a $250 million budget from Disney. After a long production with many reshoots Stanton's film was met with considerable backlash after a questionable marketing campaign that didn't even know how to title the film. They went from A Princess of Mars, which was too girly for the young bucks they wanted in the theaters, to John Carter of Mars, which was too geeky to perhaps get the cool kids, and wound up with plain old John Carter. The casting of relative unknown Taylor Kitsch, known to many as Tim Riggins on the TV show Friday Night Lights, and early looks at the footage prompted nasty responses from the online masses, who were quick to dismiss it as a sci-fi mess resembling that of the worst parts of Avatar and the Star Wars prequels. But we'll address the marketing for John Carter a little later. For now, let's just focus on the movie itself, which is about a drifting Civil War veteran in search of gold who finds a portal to an unknown world, Barsoom, known to us as Mars, where he instantly gets caught up in a war between humanoid and alien races to control the interest of the planet. Possessing superhuman strength and uncharacteristic bravery, Carter makes friends and enemies on the planet, as an arranged marriage could soon determine the fate of Barsoom unless the stranger does something about it. So, Corey, with John Carter, Stanton, to take us someplace foreign to a place we've never been at the movies with barsoom in this tale but as we've heard throughout this film's campaign Burroughs' story built a foundation to which most of science fiction owes a great debt and he got 250 million dollars to do it so was disney right to sign a blank check to andrew stanton or were the online trolls worst suspicions realized
1: Well, it's not really any of my money, so I can't really begrudge Disney for taking a chance on something like John Carter and spending so much money to do it. I feel like a lot of the reviews of this film have perhaps unfairly focused on the budget. You know, as it has with these Disney tentpole releases of late, I feel like a lot of articles were written about the ballooning budgets of Tron Legacy and the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie to say nothing of the second and third Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Personally, when I'm evaluating a film, I try to put all that aside and just see if the story and the visuals and and what the filmmaker has put in front of his cameras are worth like seeing just on an entertainment basis but with John Carter I do feel like the reported budget of this movie was fairly well spent I think this is a fun movie I think it, it does have its flaws But when you go from having rock-bottom expectations and fearing something will be a complete disaster to seeing what ends up being a really fun and entertaining science fiction adventure that does... Avatar and the Star Wars prequels for my money better than Avatar and the Star Wars prequels, yeah, I'd say their money was well spent here. Did you
0: have rock bottom expectations for it?
1: You know, my expectations weren't high. I kept thinking, Andrew Stanton directed this, there's no way that this is going to be terrible, and yet as the months leading up to the film's release sort of slogged on, and you really didn't get much too inspiring from the marketing that we saw, you begin to question it, And, and when it came out already with this reputation as a disaster, which it had on day one as a box office flop before any of the receipts had been counted. You know, you start
0: to fear for the worst, but this certainly isn't the worst. I got lost in it. I really did. I got lost in Stan's universe. I really like John Carter a lot. And I'll call it John Carter of Mars because I prefer that title, and the movie actually lands on that title yeah. at a point. And, which I think was a nice little jab that Disney and the marketing department Stanton makes there. And he actually does it twice. He does it at the end of the film and with a line in the movie. You know, give him kudos for that, but I really enjoyed the story, and that's something that Andrew Stanton puts first, always, mm-hmm. as this Pixar giant, that studio itself is known to be story heavy, and Stanton is the guy who publicly vocalizes that passion to do so, and I think he brought that to John Carter, I have yet to read the Edgar Rice Burroughs novel, I own it, I got it for Christmas one year, but when I found out that this was being adapted, of course, I put it back on the shelf and I didn't read it, but I look forward to it now to see how Stanton sort of envisioned Burroughs' world. But for the most part, with the fact that it does have flaws, like you said, although I think that they're slightly minor plot-wise, I think that there's so much expository dialogue, maybe towards the beginning of the movie, from the actual princess character early on about this science academy that she's a part of. I don't think a lot of that works, but what you come to Barsoom for and what you come to Stanton's film and this world that Burroughs has created for is the spectacle, and I think Stanton totally nails that. I looked at some clips. Clips on YouTube and just online Before I saw the movie and it looked Really artificial to me it looked Like the green screen was way too Phony and apparent but in a theatrical Setting with really good digital projection It looked pretty seamless and Again I just totally got lost in it I think the action set pieces are fantastic I think John Carter the character Is interesting he has enough depth To carry a movie of this Grand scale I think Taylor Kitsch Actually gives an underrated Performance here Mm. as John Carter. I think he has enough charisma, and I think he has enough of a leading man bravado, I guess, to command the screen, and I think he's incredibly likable in this role.
1: He's likable, but I do think that maybe his performance is one of the weak links for me. Not that he's bad. By no means is he bad, and he serves himself mostly adequately with the performance and with everything that he has to do. He certainly does have that physical presence, but I don't know. There are times where he seems a bit too much of a blank slate for me. I don't know if that's his fault, because he certainly is... Very captivating, if not slightly one-note on Friday Night Lights as Tim Riggins. But there are some movies where everything apart from the main character is interesting enough to hold your attention regardless. I think this is one of those, not knocking kitsch, but kind of a weak link for me.
0: Sun, then Rasu.
1: Mercury.
0: Then Kosu. Venus. Then Earth. Us. That is Jasum.
2: You are on Barsoom, John Carter. Myers. You came on one of your sailing ships across millions of carats of empty space. No.
0: Not like that.
2: Go on. Shock me.
0: How? one knock that I'll grant to people is that Taylor Kitsch I don't know that he has the look that's necessary for Mm -hmm. this story especially as like a grizzled Civil War veteran who's sort of removed from the world I think that he has a very modern look that works better for something like Battleship which he's starring in this summer regardless of that even though he doesn't have that weathered physical Mm -hmm. presence I think that performance wise he does exactly what is required of him by Stanton and again I think that to be an action star you have to bring that physicality and you have to bring a certain amount of likability especially when you're in nearly every single frame of this movie and everything that happens hinges on what you do I believed in him and I believed in his motivations in terms of whether or not he was going to help the people of Barsoom either the therns or the humanoid race that's led by the princess and her father so there's a scene in the movie that to me might make or break it for a lot of people and it all hinges on a choice that John Carter makes when he is escaping with his allies on Barsoom and he sees this horde charging after them. He can either run away or he can turn around and he can face it. And while he's facing that horde, he's facing a whole lot more as we learn as this sequence is sort of intercut with flashbacks from his haunting past, I think. And for me, and again, I'm biased here about composer Michael Giacchino, (laughs) but when that music swells up and he takes that action and he makes that choice and he sort of implants himself into this planet now, I think the movie really takes off. That's the best scene in the movie. Yeah, you know, there's
1: there's so much to like about the story here, which is really nicely complex, without ever really being confusing. I mean, a lot of people have accused this movie of having some sort of insane, impenetrable plot, just like with the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie or something. And, and in neither case do I find the plot to be impenetrable. It is perhaps a little bit more complicated than your usual blockbuster, but that's not to the movie's fault. The one issue I do kind of have plot-wise is with this third-party faction represented by Mark Strong, who is sort of, I guess I can say without giving too much away, he's a member of a race of beings that is legendary in the culture of Barsoom, but you soon find that they have ulterior motives, and what those motives are, are sort of all laid out in one sequence that falls a little flat for me and ends
0: up being of little consequence. Later in the film. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of agree with you. It's definitely not one of the major strengths of the movie. In John Carter's character, already has enough adversaries from yeah. where Mark Strong's character almost
1: felt tacked on right and from what I understand that's not an element of the original source material that's an invention of Stanton hmm. and his co-writers who include Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Michael Chabon in this film but you've got the city of Helium represented by Chiron Hines as, as I guess the king and princess Deja Thoris played by Lynn Collins and the moving predatory city I can't remember the name of it with Dominic West as the sort or a fearsome king, Zedanga. Is that right? Could be. Okay. And just the interplay, I think, between those two cultures that are on the verge of war, that could be halted by this marriage between the princess and between this Dominic West jackass character. He's he's playing the leader of this predatory city. I think that's enough. And then you throw in the four armed big green people and their political situation. It feels plenty complicated, but but it's never confusing. And even with the added element of the Mark Strong villain I don't think it ever gets confusing, no. but there's so much to like about that, there's so much to be said about having a complicated plot that is presented organically, not in a series of scenes with people walking down halls discussing the plots, like in the Star Wars prequels, which, I mean, look at those movies, they're nothing but people walking down halls discussing the plot. John Carter avoids all that, and it has great visuals, and it's pretty much what you'd want from a movie like this, even if it does have its issues here and there. The fact that it's been so resoundingly
0: rejected by the viewing public is still kind of puzzling to me. Yeah, and you're right. The plot isn't confusing. It's just a little superfluous. It adds a lot more than it needs, and it does become slightly muddled from time to time because this movie has to cover a lot of ground geographically. Right. John Carter is going back and forth from city to city on Barsoom, and it also has a lot to cover thematically and plot-wise, too, and it could have trimmed a lot of that fat. But again, the set pieces are really what Drew me in here to the story, too. Mm-hmm. And I think the movie totally delivers.
1: Well, there's the, I guess the first real set piece or first real science fiction set piece in the movie is when Carter and the Tharks are watching two warring airships in the sky near the Thark camp or whatever, near the Thark civilization, and Carter gets involved with that, and it's pretty incredible. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I I just like the idea. I like those warships. I like the design of them, and I like the battle sequences on them. I think Andrew Stanton pointed to Master and Commander as an inspiration for the design and for the way they do battle, and I thought that was a lot of fun. But, you know, when it comes down to it, when we're talking about John Carter here, it seems like we're going to keep going to, that scene was cool, that scene was cool. That scene was cool. You know, it was fun to watch. And and really, I don't know that it needs any more explanation than that. Well, and honest. what more do
0: you really want from a right. blockbuster? Right.
1: Yeah, it's well put together by Andrew Stanton, who didn't seem to miss a beat, at least visually moving into live action, and handles the special effects as you'd expect a Pixar veteran would. I'm not as insanely hot on the Michael Giacchino score Ooh. as you are. I, th- I think it's good, but a lot of it felt
0: a little repetitive. Oh, Oh, given no. his
1: give, No, repetitive not throughout the movie but <laughs> given his other work. No, I just I heard it and I well particularly the scene that we've already discussed right. is the best scene in the movie. I was thinking lost. That's traditional time. Giacchino. It's traditional yeah.
0: Giacchino. But it sounded like something from Lost. Repeated Giacchino. Yeah, it did. It's something from his canon for sure. Right. It might be a little derivative, but you have to look at it as his style. At it least is. he's not deriving that from someone like John Williams, who I think influenced the rest of this score. The rest yeah. of it. Other than that, is this big booming yeah. brass? You're right. A lot of that is classical score. I guess I'm just that that one moment sort of sticks in my craw mm. when I heard it. I was like, okay. Well, I have to say, I think the theme music of John Carter is legit and for the first time in a long time we actually get a musical theme for one of these big movies Mm -hmm. that to me is memorable. I remember walking out of the theater humming the theme in my head Mm. it stuck with me and he uses all sorts of these instruments like I said big brass ones he uses harpsichord he uses some electronic stuff from time to time and I just thought it was fantastic and it's another great Michael Giacchino score but again I'm already a fan but in terms of Stanton's direction and his style what I thought was really interesting about this and this probably has to do with Burroughs too was how many Genres are introduced and sort of mixed Up throughout this story you get Westerns towards the beginning of the film When he's sort of pawning off these items In this bar right. which I think is fantastic You get a Civil War drama When Brian Cranston's Powell Is introduced in the story and he's great too he's I fine. thought he was just of the time And a lot of fun it reminded me of Dances with Wolves mm-hmm. You get this sort of British costume drama in a way Towards the beginning and then you Jump into the sci-fi element of it, and you get sort of a swords and sandals movie and a gladiatorial feel when he's fighting the white apes, which is another fantastic action sequence. So I just really appreciated that and how many of these different elements were introduced to tell the story. And I think he weaves them again pretty seamlessly. And it's really funny.
1: Yeah, it is. Funny throughout. And, uh, and I'll give
0: I'll give Taylor Kitsch some props for that. He can handle the comedic scenes. Well, and then you well. have what I think is a fantastic Pixar-influenced character in Woola, right. this dog alien character that could have been the most annoying thing on the planet but it turns out to be an incredibly sweet and totally operational character in terms of its role in the story and I thought every single moment including the one where he's facing that oncoming horde that we were talking about there I thought every single moment served the story extremely well and it was just another likable character right it sounds like we're on the same page here with I John so. Carter I think I might like it a little bit more than you and you, I, you might you might look I, I look forward to watching it again well
1: I you know I watch out of the theater pretty pumped about it and it's only upon reflection that it's sort of slightly lessened in my estimation but the point is I think we could both agree that this movie deserves an audience and it deserves a lot better than it's gotten you know this is probably one of the better Disney tentpoles in a long time I mean I don't think there's any question that it's more fun than the last Pirates of the Caribbean movie it's more fun than the Prince of Persia thing that I forgot about <laughs> until reading an article that said that that was also a money loser for Disney. It's probably more fun than Tron Legacy, which is a movie that I also like, but it doesn't really offer much of a plot with its visuals. The visuals are great. In this movie, you've got the best of everything that Disney can offer with $250
0: million. Yeah, I was pumped too when I was walking out of the theater and while I was watching it, I felt like I was watching an event movie that Mm -hmm. you usually see during the summer and I was wondering, and we'll get into, again, the marketing and the distribution a little bit later in the show, but I was just thinking to myself, how could this not be a summer film why am i not watching this during the summertime that's how it felt to me as i was watching it i know that spring is a ripe season for studios to capitalize on the lack of competition and everything but john carter to me just seems tailor-made for summertime i don't disagree with that but there are a lot of whys that could be asked regarding the handling of this movie that i'm sure we'll get into we'll address it later for sure well the film is now playing for now nationwide and in tuscaloosa at the Cobb hollywood 16. I wouldn't count on it being around for much longer but uh, we'll take a quick break coming up we
1: go undercover with the cop comedy 21 jump street stay with us
2: this is $1,200 a week for voice lessons and this is what i get okay i'm gonna save it with the solo bow, bow, i'm dead and I can...
1: We're back here on Aspect Radio. Ben, it's safe to say that when the prospect of a film version of the 80s show, 21 Jump Street, was announced, few people gave it a second thought. We're
2: reviving a canceled undercover program from the 80s. Where do we report to? Down on Jump Street. 21 Jump Street.
0: You are here because you some Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus looking mothers. You will be going in as undercover high school students.
1: You yeah, have exceptional muscle tone there, young man. When did you go through puberty? Like at
0: seven or something? There's a new synthetic drug at Sagan High. The mission is find a supplier.
2: I think the dealers are the popular kids. We should start a party. That
1: would be the quickest way to get in with them. Come on, let's go. Don't give nobody no drugs, no alcohol. I promise you we'll be super professional. All I do is party. Ha, 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 ha. Take it here so I know you're cool. Ha. Have fun. Are you guys on drugs? I don't like that. Put your tongue back in your mouth. A lot of things that made me wonder about you. Your taste in music. The fact that you look like a 40-year-old man. Let me check out your chest. Check out your test.
0: After what you pulled yesterday. There's no way you
1: could be cops, right? You go to prom with me. I don't know about you, but I have next to no knowledge of the original property, apart from a career or two that might have been lost by it. And frankly, I have no affection for it whatsoever. So the notion of a film adaptation just inspired nearly complete ambivalence. After all, we've had a number of comedic reinterpretations of old television shows as big-budget motion pictures in recent history, and few of them have inspired lasting regard or memory. I couldn't tell you a thing about 2004 Starsky and Hutch movie, for example. But the announcement that directors Phil Lord and Chris Miller would be taking the director's chairs after their 2009 animated laugh riot, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, started making me wonder, as did the casting of Jonah Hill, one of the shepherds of the project from the beginning, it turns out, and Channing Tatum, a pretty-face it Boy, who, at least in my mind, had talent he wasn't doing much by with his roles in forgettable romantic dramas and dance movies. So, at long last, we have the arrival of 21 Jump Street. And I feel like with these movies, these shaggy dog modern comedies that tend to throw everything they can at the wall and attempt to make you laugh, there's only one real consideration to take into account when we start talking about them did it make you laugh
0: or did it not? Yeah, it made me laugh. It made me laugh a lot. But there were lulls where I wasn't laughing at all. I can tell you that much. And that didn't happen too often in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs which was a great film and one of my favorite from a couple of years ago. Yeah. So these guys are extremely talented and they know how to time jokes and they know how to make you laugh. And they also care about story, which I think is interesting about 21 Jump Street is that it doesn't just dismiss its story as it plods along. I think right. it cares about it. It develops its characters. It develops relationships that I think you care about, but I can't say that it's any more than really funny and slight. I don't think this movie is any more memorable than, say, the best Judd Apatow comedy, maybe. And that's stretching it.
1: Well, those are pretty memorable.
0: Well, they're fairly memorable, but I also think that they really shoot themselves in the foot with so many of their references and they end up dating themselves and I don't think they're going to age extremely well. I don't think that's totally the case for this movie. I think that it avoids a lot of that improvisation that we're used to from that camp and it sort of sticks to the script that's been written and good for it. But I have to say, Corey, we try not to talk about these movies when we see them with each other. We try not to reveal our hands before we talk about them on this show and sometimes we can't help it because of work obligations or things we do for our jobs, but I happened to be checking Twitter or Facebook or what have you, and I saw that you posted your review for this movie, and I couldn't help but see the grade that you gave as soon as I clicked on it. It was the highest possible grade you could give it, right? That's right. Well, I have to ask you then, what scale were you grading on? Because there's nothing about 21 Jump Street, in my opinion, that transcends the comedy genre. It doesn't have to transcend the comedy genre. It has to be
1: the best possible example of a comedy like this to get a four star rating because if we're grading on this sort of movie this sort of Loosely edited, sort of haphazard, let's just joke around in front of the camera, sort of thing, and maybe we'll throw in some explosions and whatnot here and there. Oh, yeah, the plot. You know, for judging on the scale of what we've gotten in the last few years, I think 21 Jump Street is the funniest comedy since 2008, since Role Models. I honestly believe that. I think that Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs is a four star movie, too, because pound for pound, joke for joke, performance for performance, these guys are getting it done. By caring about their characters, by caring about their story, by moving things along economically, which is one thing that Judd Apatow cannot claim to do in anything that he's been involved with. I feel like a lot of those movies are overlong, but this moves briskly, it moves efficiently, and it goes from joke to joke to joke to joke to joke. Maybe dipping a little bit near the end when the standard action movie mechanics have to kick in, but still, that stuff is still really funny to me.
0: Well, it didn't say in your review, four stars out of four for this kind of movie. But it's I think, for I think that's kind of understood. Movie. In any case, I think that 21 Jump Street is a legitimately great
1: movie. It's a great comedy. As far as for movies of 2012, this is the best movie I've seen in 2012. Certainly the funniest. And one of the funniest movies that's come out in years. How could I not award
0: that a four star rating? Well, I just think where the movie fails is with the action that you mentioned before. I think where a lot of these modern buddy cop comedies fail is with that action. I don't think that the sequences are storyboarded very well. They're certainly not executed very well. It's very sloppy from people who aren't really used to shooting that kind of action and it just comes across as weak, I guess, in my opinion. I wasn't blown away. I'm looking at some of the great action comedies that have succeeded in the past and I think of things like Beverly Hills Cop or I think of something like even Raising Arizona where you're talking about putting comedy first and then action comes in to sort of punctuate that story and make it move along in a universe where it couldn't otherwise. Men in Black, I think Rush Hour was pretty successful with it, the first one anyway. I look at something like Snatch, and then Scott Pilgrim, I think is the most recent example where it's hilarious, That's true. but it also happens to have really great action. But, you know, we can't really compare just anybody to Edgar Wright
1: in regards to composing his shots and Well, I don't know action. because
0: I thought that Cloudy with a Chance And Meatballs had some pretty fantastic action and we've seen with something like John Carter when someone is that gifted visually in the animated realm, it can translate to live action and they can shoot incredible or very well-done set well, pieces. Sure they could. He's not working with a 250 million dollar budget. Exactly. But you can still look at something like Haywire where you have something that is budgeted at what like $25, $35 million, yet you get these extremely well-executed action sequences. I just thought these were sloppy and slight. Again, that's just the word that keeps coming back to me. And while you had these very good comedic performances from Jonah Hill in particular, who I still think is a very acquired taste, and Channing Tatum does a good enough job.
2: The department was forced to drop the charges because you forgot to read him his Miranda rights. I did read him his right. I did a version of that. Do you even know the Miranda rights? Yes. Let's hear them then. It's look, it obviously starts with you have the right to remain silent. I know you've heard this before. And, and then, um, it, it, I think it sounds something like, uh, You're the right to be an well, the thing, yeah, uh, you, oh, right. Do you have the right to remain an attorney? Did you say that you have the right to be an attorney? You do have the right to be an attorney if you want to. We're reviving a canceled undercover police program from the 80s and revamping it for modern times. One of these programs involves the use of young, immature seeming officers. I think you idiots are perfect.
0: You're officially transferred. Wow, well, where should we
2: report? 21 Jump Street
0: I still think Channing Tatum is as dull and uncharismatic as it gets The guy can't seem The guy, the, He he's funny enough Because I think the material is funny enough To where anybody could probably be funny because of it
1: He's funny as hell in this movie. If you're not a Channing Tatum fan after this movie, I don't even know what to say. The guy was talented, first of all, breaking out in the movie uh, A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints. He's very charismatic in that movie. And then he sort of languished with these dull, pretty boy roles that didn't really give him anything to sink his teeth into. Now, I think that he's more than proven that not only can he do comedy, but he can hold it up with the best of them, like Jonah Hill. The two of them, as a comedy pair, are fantastic. They're so funny together and then individually that I don't know what you're talking about with a dull
0: screen presence with Channing Tatum. I just don't see that in this movie at all. When the guy barely moves his face and his mouth and somehow lets these lines sort of in this monotone voice creep out, I just, I gotta say man, I'm not really captivated by the guy and I'm still not either. I
1: have no rebuttal because well, it's just such a foreign response just, to this To me, to this it's, film. Just, it's
0: Channing Tatum delivering really funny lines. But I'll say that If we're talking about the script and where his character fits into the story, I thought that his character's arc was much more interesting than Jonah Hill's character. I think so. I think the time that he spends with these nerdier guys from chemistry class when they're just sort of hanging out and throwing darts and goofing off and working on this cell phone of the David Franco character, I thought that that was the best stuff in the movie, personally. Because you see this complex narrative turn that this jock takes where he learns to live amongst the nerds. when. And he's become one in this sort of backwards view of how the high school hierarchy works. Right. I just
1: I point to scenes like their first attempted arrest, the introduction of the two on the first day when they're walking through the high school parking lot and the drug freak out scene. The three scenes there that for me prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Channing Tatum is really hilarious in this movie, because he just kills it. He kills all three of those scenes. I don't
0: know. I I think just because he's jumping up and down or saying things louder or faster than he normally does doesn't mean he's good at it. I think if you give somebody who's actually got a little bit of charisma and talent, then they might could have done even more with that part. I'm baffled. I'm sorry, but, I mean, a lot of the supporting performances just, I don't know, they didn't really do it for me, and I was a little disappointed with some of the omissions that they made as the movie went along. Like, for instance, Nick Offerman... As this police chief Or right. sergeant or whatever He is hilarious in the movie He had that his is one great scene, scene, he got the job but, done Okay, but why do you keep going back to Ice Cube when you because have because Ice Cube's no, really hilarious no he's not movie. as funny as Nick Offerman. oh my god he's what, what movie funny. did you he's see he's not he's okay but it, it, to me that's more of a one joke thing that they do over and over and over this is like the funniest role and
1: probably one of the better roles that Ice Cube has had in a film in forever
0: well, you're not really judging it. I, you're not I know. I'm really comparing it to much. So, but he's so good in this. Again, movie. we're grading on a scale. We're saying Ice Cube's great in this good movie that he's finally in. Same with Channing Tatum. It's like, okay, well, they finally got some good material. They got these actors
1: who had been underutilized and they gave them great material and said, be
0: great. And they were great. And then they underutilized somebody like Nick Offerman, which Nick I don't Offerman understand. Nick Offerman was fine in his one scene. You know, why? But see, he plays essentially the same role as Ice Cube in terms of this authority figure who sends these guys to do whatever they're going to do. So you choose to revisit one or the other. I think I'd rather spend more time with a guy like Nick Offerman, who was hilarious in his first scene and wasn't just this one-note character stereotype. And of course, they're playing the stereotype for certain reasons, right? They're making this Commentary on buddy cop movies and how black actors are depicted in those movies, but again, that to me is just surface level humor that works again, just sort of one time. And when you keep going back to it, it becomes tired. Whereas I thought Offerman's performance was much more subtle and actually had some depth and was really funny. So I just that's kind of a that's kind of a nitpick, I guess, to say. I'd I'd rather I'd rather spend more time with him. Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd say so. But but again, they're the same character. So if you're going to go with one. Go with the one that's funnier Again, you've got somebody like Ellie Kemper Who I think is wasted as this chemistry teacher You didn't who, think her scenes were good? Not really I mean, t- honestly, she doesn't really pull off this oversexed, tempted teacher Who's attracted to the Channing Tatum character It's not what she's good at, first of all And again, you've got someone who's talented Now give her something to do Because she has a couple of moments And then she disappears for the rest of the movie Yet we have to spend time with someone who, to me, was talented in something like Scott but is dull in this. In Brie Larson. Oh my God! What did you? What are you saying? What does she She's bring fantastic. to the movie? What does she bring to it? She's so much. I mean. Who couldn't have played that role? Who couldn't have done that? What is unique about what Brie Larson is doing that someone else couldn't have nailed her Why would further you enhanced? want somebody else, though? Because what? I want more personality than what she you does. You don't think she has a ton of personality Not in, this, in this movie? no, no. I don't, I mean, she has a ton of personality in this movie. I disagree. <laughs> I think she's just sort of reduced to this, like, damsel in distress at the end of the movie. She sort of falls victim to, again, this action sequence at the end that doesn't really give anybody anything to do once the bullets start flying really the only person that steps his game up is Channing Tatum because he's given the task of being the action star and I think he gets the job done but I will say that again there are some supporting performances that work like Rob Riggle happens to finally be funny in something where he's not totally overdoing it and just saying things louder than everybody else on screen I think that his material is good and he delivers it really well and he has probably what is the best gag of the entire movie uh uh <sighs> You don't think so? I think that there are so many great gags in
1: this movie that to point to Rob Riggle's gag and saying it's the best in the movie is just... I don't know. I mean, you
0: obviously just didn't take to this as much as I did. Hey, man, I laughed. I think it's a funny movie, but I just am not putting it up there with even the best modern comedies. I I absolutely would. See? Because I think it is that funny and that novel, and the directors
1: take so many chances that don't seem like chances, but if you take into account the modern... Atmosphere for these comedies, they end up being pretty risky, like playing this friendship totally straight, like making these comments on high school, like doing, like placing action. And, you know, the action is one thing, but you cannot say that it's at the forefront of this movie at any point. This movie. Except during the climax. Well, this movie, I mean, you have to have, as a buddy cop comedy, an action climax, but I think, I would argue, even during that, you know, there are enough jokes and there's enough focus on the relationship between our two main characters. Characters that The action doesn't feel burdensome. I won't argue with you and say that it's amazing or like terrifically shot, but I think it's amusing and it's got a lot of great gags all throughout. And it comes together in the end on a character level because throughout this movie you start to care about these characters. You continue to care about these characters and the action climax, you're not only worried about their safety, but you're worried about where the relationship is going to end up and how they're going to overcome what
0: they need to overcome. I thought they waited way too late to finally give these guys something to be mad at each other about. The conflict just came way too late in the movie and then they had to rush the resolution. It feels natural to me. I don't know. It doesn't to me. And I think that they had a good idea in terms of reversing their roles once they got to high school compared to what it was like back when they were actually in high school. And there are so many great lines when it comes to, like you said, the commentary on high school. When they get there and they try to point out the different cliques, when they say, okay, they're the nerds, they're the such and such and what the F are they supposed to be I don't know what that is I thought that that was fantastic and the fact that the popular kids are now these environmentally friendly nerdy drama school geeks that to me was hilarious and it makes sense too and then also uh, you know some of the funnier jokes that I think other comedies should explore were like when Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill who are both probably in their late 20s as police officers posing as high school kids they're planning a party and they say wait a second how are we going to buy liquor how are we going to buy alcohol I don't have a fake ID. And they just high five and laugh about it. It's like we're of age. We can buy all we want, you know, and we can plan this great party. But again, for me, it just it didn't quite gel, I guess, as the movie just progressed towards the climax and the film sort of ended on a whimper, so to speak. Although I wouldn't mind revisiting these characters in a different setting as they sort of hint at at the end of the movie, which has already been commissioned by Sony. That's fine. And I'll see it. Because it's funny it's got jokes and I can laugh at good jokes and this has plenty of them and I hope the same people who made this make that but I just think that you can throw this in between those good comedy action movies that I mentioned before and then failures like pineapple Express and, uh, see and just the, the fact that you mentioned that and, is a failure and the other guys oh my and, god what are you doing and get smart I think it'll okay, it, yeah, give you well, that. yeah okay so I think, it, Even I think I kinda it's kinda like that movie too. Borderline either of those. It's right in between. But look, man, it's comedy. We're not gonna laugh at everything. I I you know understand we're not that. gonna laugh at the same things. But I understand also, that. I just it makes me hurt
1: that you would refer to Pineapple Express and the other guys as failures and then put this as a sort of in-betweener effort because I think that while well, those movies are good, this I mean, this is just it just does so much for me in terms of comedy, in terms of them paying attention and actually respecting the audience and their characters and their plot and just the invention of what they accomplish here with things like the drug
0: flip out. You know, even things like... That didn't like, work. The, the drug, like when they would do the title card with what stage the drug was in, uh, that didn't work for me either when it kept oh, coming man. back. It just took me out of it. And I think they thought it was funnier than it actually was. And I think they thought it was as funny as it is. It didn't is. work for me, especially when Brie Larson comes into the picture with one of them. It just felt out of place. And again, she just didn't do much for me at all. In this and also something that didn't really work for me was where they went I guess with the villain arc and mm-hmm. where you who ends up being sort of the big bad villain that they have to fight off towards the end of the movie I thought that was really contrived and extremely lazy because it turns out to be somebody that you've seen earlier in the movie and was involved in one of the set pieces and it just felt lazy to me didn't eh. look unmemorable exactly eh. that's the sound I would make no I mean it just it, it works fine it's just
1: it's secondary to the gag delivery. I don't know, man. When plus, I when I when I read plus, a, when I
0: read a review of a you know a four star review of a movie and I'm told this is one of the great modern comedies, my expectations go way higher than just, eh, that'll do. No, but I mean you can't say that what you're talking about there
1: doesn't have its own awesome payoff with an unbilled role, let's say, that comes about because of that
0: because yeah. i think
1: that's great
0: well they it was okay they could have done it a little better but i just i, I don't know i mean it was fine but it take, just take your pen to paper and write a 21 jump street sequel but, ben see, Flanagan. but i'm just saying it's like are we not here to judge these films for what they are and I, for we me are. they just they just it just didn't get it done in terms of the action or the plot or how the bad guys are fleshed out it doesn't work for me i thought it was contrived and lazy and kind of stupid. Then I am sorry for you. Okay. But because it totally works for me. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm glad, Corey. And again, this is another that I'm willing to revisit because I think it's really funny. Don't get me wrong. It's got, again, it's got good jokes, good, funny, raunchy, R-rated humor. And we need more of that done by talented people like Jonah Hill, whom I'm coming around on. I think the guy can carry a movie. He obviously can, as he proves here. But just make a better one next time. Oh, man. But the film is now playing nationwide in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16. We'll take one more break, and we will return to John Carter
1: and address this little backlash. Stick around.
2: Mr. Burroughs, I'm afraid I bring you sad tidings. Your uncle's passing came as a shock to all of us. Body is a cage that keeps me from dancing with the one I love. Our world is dying. Fate has brought you here,
0: John Carter. My mind holds the key. You may be the only one who can save us. Welcome back with Corey Kraft and our producer Andrew Richardson, I'm Ben Flanagan. So Corey, let's spend just a little more time on John Carter, a film that Disney was obviously banking on as a huge hit this spring with mainstream audiences given it had a $250 million budget and a reported additional $100 million in distribution and marketing costs. But many would say that Disney wasted that marketing money and failed to connect with any specific demographic while trying too hard to appeal to everyone. A spring release for a tentpole production like this usually benefits the studio given the lack of major competition. But ever since Disney and Andrew Stanton released that first teaser trailer accompanied by Peter Gabriel's Arcade Fire cover, fans haven't quite known what to think of John Carter. In fact, the response was quite nasty and, as we mentioned before, dismissive. It seemed most hated it before even thinking about giving it a chance. Corey... Never have we seen the kind of immediacy when it comes to film or any type of criticism that we have in the age of Twitter and other social media. Everyone has a platform now, and they'll snark at will as soon as their fingers can find a keyboard, which again is usually instantaneously. The film opened to lukewarm reviews in a paltry $30 million opening. It's now made $180 million worldwide, and recent reports say Disney stands to lose $200 million, putting it squarely in the all-time box office bomb conversation. But in a film like John Carter's case, was that response unfair? Was it truly the marketing that led to its financial demise? Should Disney have even greenlit a $250 million budget with a first-time live-action filmmaker in unknown leads? Where do you even start?
1: Well, I mean, I guess the only thing that I think is particularly unfair is the notion of these uh, entertainment journalists who were writing obituaries and sort of gleefully reveling in the film's imminent bombing before the film was even released. And I don't have to name names. I think that we read enough of those pieces before the film came out. And look, if the film comes out and it has good word of mouth, as John Carter seems to have, with a B-plus cinema score and fairly good notices throughout people who have actually taken the Time to see it on Twitter. I guess the ultimate fault falls on Disney, but the writing about it before it even comes out and the writing about how it's destined to fail and how nothing about it has worked and how they're glad to see Disney take a big loss with this one because of whatever personal vendettas or, or what have you that these writers might have, that rubs me the wrong way. But then again, if, if the people don't want to see it, the people don't want to see it. It's hard to begrudge anybody for that. I don't think the movie was particularly well-marketed, I think that I'm not a marketing expert, though, so I'd be hard-pressed to come up with a better campaign, but I don't know that anybody who was unfamiliar with the filmmaker or the source material would have seen any of that stuff and thought, yeah, that deserves me putting down $12 to see that on an IMAX screen. Even though the box office has seen an upsurge this year so far with things like Safe House and The Vow and The Lorax overperforming, Something rubbed people the wrong way here that they wouldn't even consider
0: wanting to see this Disney tentpole release. Yeah, I think the biggest problem with the marketing is that guys like you and me, we're going to see this movie regardless because we're familiar with the source material, but also because Andrew Stanton is involved. And even if we're not familiar with the source material, if we hear that Andrew Stanton is making this sci-fi action movie with all these different components, it just sounds cool on paper. And we're going to be there no matter what. Yet, even when this kind of movie should be driven to People like us who like these kinds of movies when we were younger and like them now, it never felt like Disney was trying to sell it to us. Well, why not throw on at least one of the trailers from the
1: director of Finding Nemo and Wally? Comes an adventure that inspired decades of. Science fiction, or so I don't know. See, like uh, something that could establish its pedigree from a filmmaking perspective and from a literary perspective. I don't think that they really even tried the before Star Wars, before well, they Avatar tried that thing. late, they it tried started it really coming late. In, like TV spots. Yeah, and it started like coming right before the yeah, movie, and it's came like out. too little,
0: too late, right? Yeah, and what I don't get is that young boys are not flocking to this movie because if I were 10 years old and this movie came out, I would have probably seen it three times right. by now. I was talking to our friend Ben Stark, who is a fan of this movie and is angry at the backlash that has resulted from it, and he, he had a good point. This movie should be on Pepsi cans. This movie should be on Lay's potato chip right. bags. This is just one of those movies that I think can reach out to a mainstream audience when marketed the right way. Now, how do you do that? That's obviously the challenge that Disney had to live with and survive, and whether it has or not remains to be seen. Obviously, they say that they're taking a 200 million dollar loss, but having seen it now, it boggles my mind that it isn't more successful with younger people because this is a Disney film that I think appeals to them and is while it's violent and spurts and has some colorful language at the beginning I think that it appeals directly to those sensibilities. Well okay let's compare the first trailer
1: for Stanton's previous film Wally, to this. Wally was something that I think a lot of Disney shareholders and entertainment writers were worried about being a potential underperformer before that movie came out because you have a silent protagonist and you have an adventure that until let's say the second half of the film or maybe 40 minutes in or so you don't really have any spoken dialogue. You you have some incidentally in the background, but you know the worry is are kids gonna have the attention span for this and, and, and what are they gonna do? Well so the first trailer for Wally as I recall, at least half of it was a voiceover from Andrew Stanton. Discussing past Pixar movies. You see him on camera? Yeah. 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 So it it says, you know, we had a meeting one time and we talked about the stories that led to finding Nemo. Remember that? You like that?
2: In the summer of 1994, there was a lunch. Uh, Me, John Lasseter, Pete Doctor, the Lake Joe Ramp all sat down. Toy Story was almost complete. And we thought, well, geez. If we're going to make another movie, we got to get started now. So at that lunch, we knocked around a bunch of ideas that eventually became A Bug's Life, Monsters Incorporated, Finding Nemo. And the last one we talked about that day was the story of a robot named WALL-E.
1: And then he's like, we had one more idea. And it was about a little robot named Wally uh, and the adventure he would go on. And then it cuts to footage from the movie. That's pretty captivating. It's pretty captivating for people who like movies like you and me. And I think it also gets across the point to families that this is going to be, despite maybe an untraditional take, another family-friendly, exciting adventure that everybody's going to like. And then, of course, the the rest of the marketing material sort of deepens. I guess the world of Wally and gave a clear indication of what the movie would be like. So the first exposure we had to John Carter, as I recall, was the Peter Gabriel trailer that, for being a rollicking Disney tentpole family adventure, seemed pretty solemn. Seemed like it didn't really establish the setting of the movie, the character, John Carter, whose name is the title, so maybe you ought to do some work in that regard right offhand. It seemed like the marketing tried to disguise the fact that it was on Mars that its character was a Civil War veteran, that it even had anything to do with that time period at all, except maybe in the later trailers where they revealed the Edgar Rice Burroughs character as if that would be a draw to people, seeing these people in Victorian I think that just
0: confused people. I think
1: it did, too. Uh, So you have, I guess, this marketing campaign that at first seems more concerned with creating an air of seriousness and mystery around it and I'm all about marketing campaigns not giving away the plot of a movie or giving away every money shot as it were, but there's that initial campaign was just confusing and it didn't really give any clear
0: indication at all what the movie was going to be about and how people could get into it. The Wally trailer that you mentioned is one of my favorite trailers of all time because it's happened before where a filmmaker has stepped in front of a camera to introduce his new movie mm-hmm. you think about people like Hitchcock who have done that before and I think Andrew Stanton is one of the guys who can actually pull that off because he's someone who cares so deeply about his story and his characters and he cares so much about his audience and I think that he's in a way kind of like Spielberg where he's able to articulate that and to the masses in a really appealing way and I thought that that was just a really unique marketing strategy something that obviously wasn't applied this time around and look if it worked that time do it again let Andrew Stanton come back out and say hey let me tell you a little something about this story John Carter of Mars or John Carter whatever they were going to call it you ever seen Star Wars you ever seen this or that well this came first and if it came from the horse's mouth I think it may have reassured hardcore film lovers like it did the first time with Wally and even parents who might have been interested. Or just
1: lead the marketing, not not necessarily even with Andrew Stanton giving an introduction, but just some sort of introduction. A title card that says Edgar Rice Burroughs is, is widely known as the father of, the, of modern science fiction, and his stories featuring John Carter were where many Of our favorite films Got their inspiration This year Disney takes you back To where It all began With It's first film In the franchise You know There are so many things That they could have done To introduce the concept Without being Seemingly
0: ashamed Of the concept Kids should have been Playing this video game Before the movie came out They should have been Playing with the action figures They should have been Drinking out of McDonald's souvenir Plastic cups This is that kind of movie To me And what is crazy In my mind is that you have a guy like Stanton, again, who put himself, and this is somebody that we do actively trust and we know is a brilliant filmmaker, and he puts himself into the story and he's going to give everything he possibly can for his live-action debut. And I look to the Ain't It Cool piece that I think you posted and other people mm-hmm. posted, written by Mr. Beaks on there, where he says, and I have it in front of me now, John Carter is an earnest attempt to evoke wonder. And Stanton, again, is one of those guys who can successfully do that. And I think he does it with John Carter. And you have people, and not just entertainment writers, but you have online folks and just fans and these trolls out there who genuinely love movies. And they are the ones who are on the attack. And they're the ones who aren't willing to give it a chance. They're not willing to give a guy that they know they trust a chance in a movie like John Carter, which harkens back to those movies that made them geeks in the first place. Why not give that a chance? Because these people don't love movies. They don't truly love movies. Well, apparently. But, yeah, I mean, it
1: baffles me. Even if you see this movie and you don't like it, it is from a studio and a filmmaker who are taking risks. They wrote a $250 million check to a first-time live-action filmmaker who, granted, does have a pretty good track record at storytelling to bring to life a not-terribly-well-known-anymore property that nevertheless has the capacity to, as you said, evoke wonder. While a lot of writers might see that as foolish, that's what I want my movie studios to be
0: doing. I don't know. I think that the Disney marketing team could take cues from the folks at Warner Brothers who gave us something like Inception, which was this $200 million budgeted original idea from a guy, again, who has a great track record in terms of storytelling and mixing that with great spectacle. And they pulled that off and they had a $600 or $700 million International hit And I'm not saying That John Carter Is as good Or in the same ballpark As something like Inception But you have to think Outside the box In ways that they did Where you have A mysterious trailer And you have this Viral trailer That just Was a huge hit With that Mime heist track That was spoofed Over and over In a positive way I don't know What worked there When you had something That people were Totally unfamiliar with This was a brand new concept A brand new idea And and it was also Mostly shrouded Mystery. Exactly, and it did Gangbusters. So why does that work and this doesn't? Is it because people have this vitriol that they're not willing to hide for Disney and they just want to have it out with the studio? Or what did Andrew Stanton do? What did this property do? Is it because it's a property that people aren't familiar with and people are bitter about that? I don't really get it. I think that
1: Inception got to where it got based on Christopher Nolan's name and there's no such name to attach to John Carter. But, I mean, you're right. that The marketing here fell short... ...on many different levels when we've had examples like Inception of ways to sell an unfamiliar story. What if
0: Pixar had attached its name to the movie?
1: I have been wondering that.
0: You gotta think, I mean, if you push the Pixar brand even more, say, than the Disney brand... Then all you have to do is say,
1: in 2012, Pixar Animation Studios takes its first steps Mm -hmm. into
0: live action...
1: 80 million dollar opening weekend
0: (laughs) well yeah it's just like you have that studio logo there at the beginning of the The trailers the people who brought you the toy story trilogy the man who brought you Finding Nemo right I don't know yeah
1: I I don't know I mean it's just it's one of those things that again I I would hope that it picks up a second second life on DVD and Blu-ray but I just think that it's got the stigma attached to it now I think that a lot of the people who didn't take a chance on it in theaters probably will continue not to take a chance on it on DVD and blu-ray but what astounds me is that it got positive word of mouth by and large from the audiences who paid to go see
0: it yeah so the people whom I've spoken to who have seen the movie like the movie uh, yeah I haven't talked to anybody that hates it I haven't either so I, I just I don't understand it me neither and again yeah I'm I'm with you I think I hope that it finds new life and I think it will as these movies tend to do and again this is a film that's going to get brought up over and over throughout the years because now it is in that sort of unfortunate canon of box office disaster so we're going to see it on these lists for years to come but it might hopefully wind up on the lists of why was that a box office disaster what were people thinking why didn't they embrace it the way they probably should have it made no sense but time will tell to be sure But closing things out, Corey, let's talk about what is on DVD right now. Is there anything new? Yeah. One of my favorite movies of the year, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, uh,
1: Thomas Alfredson's adaptation of John Le Carré's novel starring Academy Award nominee Gary Oldman. We talked about that pretty extensively in our recent Best of 2011 show, so check that out. A movie that you liked a lot more than me, David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I'll go ahead and say it. I picked it up this morning. I'm a sucker for David Fincher Blu-ray's... it? Yeah. Wow. This is one that I could see myself giving another chance to. And of course David Fincher put so much care and thought into his home video releases. This has something like four hours of behind the scenes making of material on an extra disc. And, and you know, the supplements for Zodiac, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button and The Social Network were all top notch. So this movie, regardless of the fact that I think it's somewhat of a missed opportunity, is one that I could see myself really getting into I guess the behind the scenes workings of how it was made.
0: I see what you're saying when you, you say a missed opportunity, but the way I look at it and sort of the way I looked at it when I heard about it from the get-go was it was a taken opportunity. Someone already took that opportunity. Well, okay. So why why are they taking it, let, it again? Let me
1: rephrase it with another <laughs> cliche.
0: It was a swing and a miss. Okay,
1: fine. Uh, also on DVD and Blu-ray this week, David Gordon Green's <laughs> comedy The Sitter starring Jonah Hill. I saw that. I didn't think it was that bad. It's not great, but it's it's worth a laugh or two, mostly for Sam Rockwell, and of course, how could I forget the Muppets? James Bobin and Jason Segel and Nicholas Stoller rekindling the old magic. Can't go wrong. Can't go wrong with that. Oh, and also uh, Roman Polanski's new movie *Carnage*,
0: with Jodie Foster, Kate Winslet, John C. Riley, and Christoph Waltz. I saw *Singing in the Rain* since our last Good. show, and I loved it. And I see why. It's incredible. It's, I see why it's one of the great. Films of all time, let alone one of the great musicals of all time. Gene Kelly's always cracked up to be. So I'm not telling people anything they don't already know about singing in the rain, but I'm glad I knocked my list down to four. And up next is The Conversation. So, oh man. Yeah, can't wait. We'll have a uh, good conversation about that one. Oh boy. Starting this week in theaters nationwide and in Tuscaloosa at the Cop Hollywood 16. This movie, The Hunger Games, which is another one of these young adult adaptations that all the kiddies seem to love and all of our wives, maybe mine, maybe just mine. I know Matt Scalici's wife, Francesca, is a big fan of this book mine series. To you. Yours too? Yeah. Okay. And yours too? Okay, well, we're all going to get dragged to it, so we might hey, as well. Hey, I'm going at midnight. We might as well. I saw that you tweeted that you had bought your tickets. And I, look, I've got to say that this movie actually in the story. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. I mean Jennifer Lawrence, man. Well, I'm there. If it, no matter who's cast, I think the, Jennifer. Lawrence. I think the story itself. Well, who was really bad in X Men First Class? So oh, we'll see. We'll you. see like which Jennifer Lawrence we get. But anyway, the story, the concept to me sounds really appealing, and I know that things like Battle Royale exist, and Lord of the Flies do, and in in my case, like the film I think about when I think about the Hunger Games is The Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger. It reminds me of that kind of. Proving that you are of a certain generation. I am. Well, (laughs) it's just one of those movies that my dad, for whatever reason, let me watch when I was way too young on VHS. And I'm eternally grateful for that because where else are we going to find a great Richard Dawson film performance? But (laughs) no, I I think it does actually look good. And it's actually one of these YA movies or adaptations that I'm actually looking forward to seeing. So we'll see how it goes. I mean, it's got a good cast and it's got a good director. I like Gary Ross. Well, I'll be seeing it at uh, midnight. So we'll be good to go to talk about it uh, well this movie October Baby is also starting I don't know Friday. what that is
1: well you can now find us on aspectradio.net you can email any of your feedback to feedback at aspectradio.net find us at twitter.com slash aspectradio or facebook.com aspectradio and check us out on al.com and tusk205.com
0: find us on iTunes with a quick search or click the link on our blog you can read Corey's DVD column in Tusk magazine every Friday in the Tusk news or on tusk205.com follow his tusk musings on twitter at Corey tusk movies be sure to visit our friend matt scalici's website filmnerds.com where you'll find a new episode of cinematrimony the other great alabama film podcast on 21 jump street this time plus my new great scenes entry on a short but brilliant sequence from fargo the joel and ethan cohen movie my favorite joel and ethan cohen movie probably mine too Thanks, as always, to our producer, Andrew Richardson. And until next week, from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. Next time, we're going to have a conversation on what makes a good comedy. This is Aspect Radio. Thanks for listening. A so, Corey, with John Carter, Stanton attempts to take us somewhere foreign. Stanton the to the— <laughs> f-. Hang on a second. Okay, I got it. Yeah. Here. One of you guys said that Taylor was able to do comedy well. He was able to do the comedic scenes well. Uh-huh. It didn't turn out a little kitschy.
1: Oh. Oh, boo. <laughs> you, you you spoke that into the microphone just so you could put that at the end of the show, didn't you? <laughs> boo. Now you know
2: that I'm about to